Hello and welcome to the TT Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk to one person from the world of the TT racers to discuss their lives, their journeys, their ambitions and their relationship with the greatest motorsporting event in the world. I'm Chris Pritchard and I've got a feeling that Steve Plater is going to enjoy this one. Steve, we have got Matt Roberts. Hey mate, you're going to enjoy anything when you work with a professional. <laughs> just spend time. Now, nah, good guy, Matt. You know, I'm looking forward to this one. He's, he's had quite a, um, a varied lifestyle with his commentary and, and, and doing his different things that, to, to earn some money and, and what he enjoys. So it's going to be a good one, mate. Yeah, and slightly different in the fact that this is probably the first person that we've had on, if I remember rightly, that, that isn't a team manager or, or an actual racer. Yeah, a little bit different because you can't reference any results or anything else. But uh, I think it will be of interest. I've spent some time with Matt, obviously, you know, it makes a nice, pleasant change for me to work with a professional, of course. But uh, at the at the TT with the commentary, he's a good guy and likes a beer. Listen, if we can trip him up at any point and I can, you know, because he he's, he's, he's basically holding the job up for me right now. <laughs> right, shall we get him in and see what he's got to say? Let's listen. For today's episode of the TT Podcast, we're joined by Matt Roberts. Starting his career back in 2000, he's gone on to become the face of motorcycle racing in the UK, presenting across MotoGP, World Superbikes, British Superbikes, and since 2018, the Isle of Man TT Racers. He's a journalist, TV presenter, author. Fortunately for me, he's yet to start the in the world of podcasts <laughs> or the fan park, but it's only a matter of time. This could be This could be my last podcast, so if it is... Thanks, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Matt Roberts, welcome to the TT Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, no danger. You're doing a fantastic job. Well, I think someone paid you to say that, didn't they? <laughs> Don't kick him off because he's still sore, mate. He's still sore. He he, he tried out for MotoGP. He tried out. Yeah, you somebody yeah, else got you, the is job. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't, I didn't really, you, want, I didn't really you, want to bring you, it you up. You stole though. my job. <laughs> oh, sorry. Back, back in the day. I was telling Steve about it this morning. So Back uh, in which day? The, the day. To, when did BBC get MotoGP? Oh, okay. 2004, five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get onto the TT shortly, but I'll just regale everybody I with this tale. Think you'd be over it by now, wouldn't you? Yeah. I was at um, James Tolson's house, and Susie Perry turned up to do a BBC interview with him, and we were chatting away, and she said, "You know, BBC have now got MotoGP. We're looking for presenters." I'd ne- I'd, I'd, I'd never thought about it, but I was like, yeah, I can do that. So she got me a, a screen test with the BBC down at Brands Hatch World Superbike Round. Right. Turned up there, in the paddock, on the in the pit lane. She said, "Right, start interviewing me." I'm, I have zero experience. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just start asking her. They must have been really terrible questions. <laughs> and then James comes in uh, from uh, from practice, and she says, "Right, head straight into the garage and start interviewing James." Right. So I run in there. I'm like, "Sorry, James. Sorry to interrupt. How's practice going?" You go, you, you know, how's your setup? How, how are you looking forward to the race? I, again, can't remember what I asked him. But then a couple of months pass and she sends me an email saying, it was great, you did great, but we're not going to give you the job. So I turn on for the first round, probably Phillip Island, and there's <laughs> Matt Roberts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the BBC's coverage of Motor. And that was it. I was like, if I ever see this man in person. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah, that explains <laughs> a lot now. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, obviously you were too expensive, Chris, because uh, clearly you know, it can only have been that. <laughs> so, um, like I say, we uh, we always start the TT uh, episodes asking the riders or the team managers what it feels like to get that tap on the shoulder. Now, during that period of those riders lining up to go and setting off, 
you're normally stood in front of them somewhere with a microphone and you've only really got one chance to say that line that you're going to say before they go. Mm. So are you are you actually thinking about what the riders are doing or is it solely thinking about what you're doing and, and the TV work? Um, well, that's a good question. I'm thinking, trying to think about what the riders are doing because obviously when you're doing the little grid walk there, talking to them, the last thing you want to do is put them off or say something that's going to be out of turn or you're very aware of that. And also you're very aware of um, how loud you might sound. You know, that sounds like a stupid thing, but yeah. it's so quiet on the grid, actually. There's a bit of a hush falls around, isn't there? And uh, I'm always conscious that I'm um, sort of running around barking and, you know, saying things that are, are really not that relevant to the moment. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be respectful, obviously. But, you know, more and more now the guys, uh, I think, understand the importance of, of speaking uh, for the sponsors for the tv and for everything so they're prepared for it and uh i feel i think with knowing that now i think i feel more comfortable doing it but um yeah it's, it's quite a special privilege to to be able to be the person asking them questions at that point so how does it feel compared to you like, we'll go back through your career because i find it fascinating how you got into it what you've been doing and, and how you've gone on to be hugely successful but um, how does it compare to British Superbikes, World Superbikes, and and especially MotoGP? Those the kind of the starting, you know, before the riders are going off to race. Yeah, it's it's completely different. I mean, I obviously listened to to the podcast and listened to the the way that the the guys talk about it. I was listening to to John McGuinness the other day um, talking about that moment and and how it is different. And I think we all know why it's different. It's obviously it's, it's something very special. Uh, there's an element of of risk that's there. That's um, bigger than it is at those other events and that gives it an extra i suppose gravitas in that moment and also the tt is something that for um you know for, for riders comes around once a year so they only get that one chance so all the kind of preparation that they've done over the year and the the, the expectations that they put on themselves to perform it has to happen right then so i, I guess it's kind of like a concoction of of emotions for those guys and you can and you can feel that you know you you, you guys have obviously you've, you've ridden it, Steve, and you've been there this year, Chris, and, and before as well. Where that atmosphere is is unique. It's um, you can cut it. It's, it's something really special. Yeah, I, I mean, I've like you say, I've been there a few times, and I've never raced. But you can, there is something in the air that you just cannot explain unless you've been there. Even as a fan, even as someone who did a little bit of work there, you can't really explain it, can you? No, it's funny, you know. You, the helicopters up above you, and you know, you're like do, 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 yeah. do that moment, and everybody knows once that happens, uh, what's coming, and just catching people's eye, you know, whether it's a rider or whether it's a mechanic or it's a, a colleague, you just look at each other and you just know there's something special is about to happen, and um, yeah, there's 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 nothing quite like it. Is that, I, I there is still a buzz, obviously, on on a BSB grid mm -hmm. or, or a MotoGP grid or a Superbike grid, but it's it's different. I interviewed uh, Stuart Higgs uh, on at the start. I think it's of, of the senior actually the last day because I think you'd gone um, off to do um, uh, was it World Superbike? Yeah. And I interviewed Stuart Higgs, and you know I think it's fair to say that uh, Stuart Higgs, obviously the head of um, uh, of the British Superbike Championship, who I think it's fair to say um, is a little bit negative towards road racing. Really, it's not really his passion, and 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 especially the TT. But he was there this year as a, as a guest and was kind of quite blown away of the atmosphere on the grid. Mm. And he said um, was quite in awe of it a little bit as well. Yeah. yeah, quite special. Yeah, I think if you can convince Stuart, then you can convince yeah, anybody. Yeah. But, you know, our, our colleague Cam Donald put it best when he said, it's not what you see, it's not what you hear, it's what you feel. And 
that, yeah. that's the TT for me. I think all around the course, but nowhere more so than um, on the start line before they go. Absolutely. So let's take uh, take you back to your start line in getting into your <laughs> career of of uh, journalism, I guess. Yeah. So you went to Huddersfield Uni. Yeah. That where it all started. Was there a passion there for motorcycling beforehand, or was it solely journalism? So I, I studied Spanish at, at uni, at Huddersfield Uni. And my see. Thir- Did you? See, no, I'm just saying. See. Oh, see. I thought see, you said. See. I thought you said same. <laughs> see. <laughs> No, that, that's as far as my Spanish. I'm saying in English, no? Sí, sí. Café con leche. Por favor. Yeah. La cuenta, por favor. But when I, when I did my third year, um, so you do a year out in Spain, right? And I went off to a little town in the north of Spain to do my third year out. And that was the year that Alex Crivier won the um, 500cc World Championship 99. Yeah, and um, so I watched loads of it on, on TV that year because I was kind of on my own and spent a lot of time in front of the yeah. telly learning Spanish. And, um, and and reading the sports papers as well because I'm a massive sports fan. And, um, yeah, so I was aware of the championship. Um, obviously, I'm from Huddersfield, which is where James Whittam is from, and knew about Jamie and had mm-hmm. some kind of um, mutual family friends and stuff like that with James. I always followed his progress in the, in the paper and stuff. So I, I can't say I was a massive racing fan. I'd be lying if I said I was, but I, I, I did like it. I'd watched it. And, um, yeah, and a, a long story short... When I came back, I did uh, my final year. I did like a, a sports radio program. Um, decided I wanted to go into sports journalism because sport was really my, my passion, mainly football to be honest, but mm-hmm. really everything. And then once I'd finished, I um, I wanted to get into it, and I, I scoured the papers for jobs, and one popped up that was for working for Dawn on 500 cc World Championship in Barcelona. Sent off my CV, had an interview down in London. Lied a little bit about my connection with James Whitten, <laughs> and um, that seemed to swing it. I can't believe they advertised that in the Huddersfield Times. <laughs> the Examiner, do you mind? Oh, is that what it is? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why Spanish, though? What was that? Been? Oh, blimey. That, that? Um, oh God, you know when you... So, this might be a bit much for this podcast, but when I, was, when I was... Right, when I was at, sorry, when I was at um, junior school, I went to a Catholic primary school where most of the kids were either Irish, like my family... Italian or Polish, right? And the Italian boys in my class had an Italian teacher who came in and gave them Italian lessons. He'd take them off to a different room for these Italian lessons. And they'd always come back with Panini football stickers, which he gave out as prizes for um, if they did the homework. And around that time, my auntie married an Italian guy. So I went to my teacher and I said, Miss, um, I've got an Italian uncle. Can I go with the Italian boys? She was like, yeah, okay. So I went off and learned Italian purely to get the, the football stickers. Now, I didn't learn <laughs> Italian properly, but I had the basic kind of understanding. So when I went to high school, my first Spanish test, um, it just clicked straight away and I got like 100% in my test and my teacher was like, oh, you're great at this. Yeah. And like any kids, when you get told you're good at something, um, you won't know what that's like, Steve. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> um, it's that positive reinforcement. And I just, I thought, oh, I'm good at, I'm good at Spanish. Yeah. So I kept it going and then, I always really enjoyed it. I liked being told I was good at something and I kept it going. And then I think once I'd done my A-level in it, I was like, right, I'm going to do it for a degree because I didn't know really what I wanted to do for a job at that point. But I thought, well, my uncle said to me, if you've got a language, then you're going to double your opportunities, whatever you choose to do. So so that's why I did it, yeah. And that was perfect. Again, you know, you you don't fall into that job because it doesn't fall on your lap. But the fact that you, you had that Spanish behind you was... Yeah, was yeah. Oh, so I, I would dare say that, I mean, not many lads in Huddersfield went and studied Spanish at uni. I think I was, I was the only one actually at Huddersfield University. I think there was only about five people on my course. So, um, yeah, that's 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 kind of how that happened. Although interestingly, 
that's how I met Gav, Gavin Emmett, who does the most of GP right. stuff now on BT. We met um, on our year out when I was up in that little town in the north of Spain. Um, he was out there studying as well because he, he also did Spanish. So did you get the job at the same similar time No, so I got the job with Donna then in the September when I, after I finished uni or the November. Um, I got that job and I'd been there for a few months and went on holiday with Gavin, our lad's holiday, because uh, we were already mates from, from uni. And um, when I got back, my boss was like, oh, look, I think I need someone else to come in and help you and uh, do the job with you. You know, I can't be bothered to advertise it again. Do you know anybody? And I was like, yeah, I've literally just been on holiday with my mate. And he, I've been telling him all about my cool new job and, and what have you. And uh, I think I'd just been to the first couple of Grand Prix of 2001. So I was all excited telling him about Japan and how great it was and everything. And Gav was like, oh, I'd love to do that. He was working in recruitment at the time in London. Oh, gosh. And um, anyway, yeah, so I just put him forward. And uh, literally the following week, he was on my sofa in, in Barcelona. And that was that was the start of that. So for people that don't know briefly, Dorna... They are the organisers of MotoGP, Yeah, they're right? the commercial and TV rights holders of, of, of MotoGP. Yeah. yeah. And World Superbike now, actually, as well. And yeah. at the time, they got motocross and trial as well. So they were doing quite a lot around that early 2000s, um, which was great because the internet, well, it wasn't exactly brand new, but certainly the website was new. And so initially I was, um, and Gav as well, we were doing written and video content for the MotoGP website, but it was covering lots of different sports and... Uh, different disciplines of, of motorbikes anyway. What about you? Obviously, you're, I know you're looking over here at, um, at Matt thinking, thinking of ways you know, to, I ways want, to I want knock him off. I really am. Have you, have you got a second language? I know it's really hard to learn South yeah, Yorkshire, yeah. Sheffield anyway, but it's just... Have yeah, you got yeah. Sprechen Sie Deutsch. That's a no. No, I don't. No, I don't. I did go to night school to learn Italian. So and and I managed to go on holiday, not speak a word of English. So I did learn something. Did they give you any panini stickers for no uh, at panini night stickers? No, exactly. no. But at, yeah. but at, but at thirty five, I'd kind of grown out of it. So yeah. <laughs> what the stickers? Yeah, I haven't. I still think I've still got my book from school. Maybe, okay. Maybe book, yeah. Well, I bring your swaps to uh, Donington <laughs> Park, and we'll see what. <laughs> what we're talking? Prem- we're, we're talking Premier League. Stickers. No, no, God, no. This is World you know, Cup. First this division. Is many, no, many, <laughs> many moons ago. Oh, first no, division. Is, yeah, yeah. This is when Luton Town were in the first division. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can pretty much name that team actually. Yeah, really. Brian Steen, Mark Steen, Steve Foster, uh, Les Sealy. Yeah, all those like mid eighties team. You know, when you're obsessed with like something like that as a kid, you just. No, so, so football is your sport. Obviously, we're gonna we're, we're gonna alienate a lot of people by saying, "Yeah, sorry, everybody." Football. Yeah, um, no, it is. I mean, it, yeah, I, I love football. Are you still playing? Yeah, I'm still playing. I played um, night before last. No, last night. I played last night. There's a job yeah. going with Premier League. I've heard doing what? <laughs> uh, anything? <laughs> Just anything. oh, I see. <laughs> Sweeping up. I'm going to apply for you. <laughs> you just get a phone call next week saying, you apply for this job at the Premier League. Yeah. You, you, you now have it. So what was it like then, MotoGP? Uh, it was great. I mean, at first, um, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, you know, I've, I've been there a couple of months and before I knew it, I was in Japan, Suzuka for round one of 2001. In fact, I, I did a trial round. Um, that was a weird thing. I went for the interview and then I uh, didn't hear anything back from the interview and I emailed the guy and I said, is there any news on the job? And he, he emailed me back. And this was the time I had to go to my mum's work to use her computer to log on <laughs> yeah. to the email. Yeah. You know, um, those are the days. And um, so my mum's there and I've logged on and checked if I've got a reply. And he's, on the Amstrad. Oh, yeah, on, the, on the Amstrad, <laughs> yeah, the BBC. <laughs> and, um, and it's gone, yeah, there is some news. Actually, we'd like you to come to Brazil next week for a trial. Um, so literally, really? like that was a Friday, I think, and I flew out on the Tuesday Went to the Rio GP in 2000, which um, 
was where Kenny Jr. won the championship mm-hmm. and Valentino won what was his second um, 500 yeah. win um, that weekend I was there. So um, so that was my first GP. And then, yeah, before I knew it then, we were up and running in, in 2001 and um, it was a bit, bit bizarre really because um, I was trying to work everything out. Obviously the travel, the job, speaking the um, Spanish, you know, as part of my job. And um, yeah, it was... Um, pretty intense so none of that was in front of the camera none of that was the presenting no, gigs no, that was all no the first year was just writing press releases um you know th- i think they had a department called new technologies and it was things like wap do you remember that wap yeah Blimey, hell, yeah so th- that lasted for about a year yeah. didn't it you know where p- <laughs> the, but technology was moving so fast it, qu- it quickly outstripped everything you know they sort yeah. of introduced something and then it just get taken over so i think for a few races i was doing like live kind of text updates of the race mm-hmm. on via WAP. I mean, I, God knows how many people were actually watching those feeds, but I'd be like, lap two and Abe has <laughs> just passed, you know, <laughs> Barros for the lead or whatever. Um, and then writing press releases and stuff. So, yeah, and then the following year, then I started doing commentary on the world feed, mm-hmm. Donna's world feed with Nick Harris, uh, who you'll know, Steve, and uh, Dennis Noyes. And then the following year after that, Gav... Was, was already well he was already there as well but then he started doing the tv stuff as well so what, what was it like as you know kind of a, a working environment was it obviously like we talk about the art we talk about the alaman tt of course but it's you know that's a very kind of laid back mm. atmosphere around all riders team managers and so on mm. what was the gp paddock like then um it was probably more open than i thought it was i think i probably had a bit of imposter syndrome at the time where i didn't dare yeah. go up to people you know <laughs> there were great people working there like jeff crust was the manager at yeah Marbury Yamaha at the time and if I'd have, I don't know had more confidence probably I would have gone up to them more and I don't know it was you know I was just a young kid straight out of university so and, yeah. yeah and I look back now and everybody says it was um it, it's much more closed now and I in, in lots of ways I think it's more open but that's probably because of the relationships that I have whereas at the time I didn't really have any and I wasn't particularly confident like that in terms of going up to speak to people or whatever so um but when I think back, God, I used to just go and knock on people's door for an interview, you know. And yeah. Gary McCoy, Max Biaggi, all those guys. There was, nothing was ever set up or arranged. You just kind of just walk up to them. So Who was the worst? Biaggi. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he was different. Oh, and Troy Bayliss was tricky too. I mean, Troy came to GPs in, I think, 04? Oh, flipping it, yeah. 03 or 04. Mm-hmm. And I used to have to, one of the things I had to do for Dorna was, um, so to try and make MotoGP more popular around the world, one of the things we did was I'd go around with an MP3 player and record interviews with guys from different countries. Yeah. And then we'd send the interviews out to the like private radio stations of those respective countries. So Mika Kallio was in 125s. I'd go up and interview him in Finnish. Obviously, I wasn't speaking yeah, Finnish, yeah. but he was. And then we'd send the files off to like Finnish FM or whatever. Um, whatever it was called. I think it was called Finnish <laughs> FM. <laughs> Ah. <laughs> that's a different yeah. uh, different kind of radio show but um but we did it with Troy and uh I'd, and one time he was he was signing um these little uh, replica mini you know the diecast like oh, yeah, diecast yeah, yeah. the cats he was signing them and I went up and I was like oh Troy is it alright if we get a quick word and he goes fuck off <laughs> and I was like <laughs> alright um no seriously is it alright and he goes I told you to fuck off really <laughs> yeah and I was like Right, okay, I will. Oof. So I left it. And then things like that had happened. And then I'd, obviously I didn't dare go back to him, really. Yeah. To be honest, he, was, he probably laughed his head off. When I walked out of there, he probably laughed to himself. Or maybe he was stressed, or maybe he was having a difficult day. Yeah. I don't know. And he's obviously he's a great guy, um, lovely fella. 
I think it's fairly well known that he didn't always uh, appreciate the media that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't that know that, it, seriously. It didn't, yeah? No. Maybe it was just me. But no, I th- yeah, just he, Matt Roberts. I don't think he enjoyed that side of the job. I mean, like look at him now with, I mean, and that's he's, he's got his kid in World Super Bowl, yeah. World Super Sport now, and he just doesn't want to do any TV. And I, that's great. That's because he doesn't want to mm. uh, stand in front of his kid, you know, and and, um, mm-hmm. and be um, or, or for Ollie to be Troy Bellis's son. So um, yeah, I think he's, he, that's certainly certain Australians yeah. probably <laughs> don't yeah. don't quite like the English. A few, yeah. Like it. So you go in. You become a commentator on the world feed. Mm. Again, is it some? Is it like a career path you're looking at and going? I can see myself moving into TV. Was it anything you wanted to do or or not? No, not really. Just kind of full, not at that time. Just, just kind it. of fell into it. Yeah. Whenever I got a chance like that, I just did my best. Honestly, yeah. like sounds a bit corny, but I did. I just tried my best at it, and then I thought, ah, oh, maybe I could do this. Mm. So actually, you know what? Gav Gav did the BBC in 2005. So the BBC came in in 05, but they kind of they were half in. In a way. Yeah. Sorry, 04, they were half in. They took World Feed highlights, um, showed highlights. And then in 05, they came in with Susie in a live show. And Gav was still working for Donna. He was the World Feed pit lane reporter, but mm-hmm. they kind of pinched him. And he was the race reporter for the Beeb for, the, for 2005. And by that time, I'd actually left Donna and gone back as a freelancer. That's a long story. But yeah, so I was doing that. And then um, at the end of 05, Gav got offered um, kind of a promotion at Donner. He got made a director, which meant that he couldn't do the um, the pit lane stuff for the BBC mm-hmm. anymore. So he came to me and he was like, look, we didn't come to me because we sat in the same room all the time. But he said, uh, <laughs> I've got this chance to be a director at Donner and um, it means I can't do the BBC stuff anymore, but I get to decide who does it. So do you want to do it? Um, yeah, so that's what you were missing, you see. If you'd have just met Gav... And spoke Spanish. And spoke Spanish in 1999. See. That's... I mean, I was... You've been beating yourself up all this time, Chris, and you didn't realise that's six, all it was. I was only 16. In 99? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Get over people it. People would have wondered why you were out there. He <laughs> <laughs> was making sandcastles on the beach. That's mm. <laughs> so what was the experience like now being in front of the, the camera? Did you did you enjoy it? Or, again, was it is it just like a job? Because for me, like, I want to I wanna be able to not entertain people, but, you know let people have a good experience through this podcast or whether it was a fan park or whatever, yeah. but you've kind of just fallen into it. So at that point, are you like, right, I'm a presenter now? Yeah. There's a bit I've missed out here. Um, oh, here we go. And I always miss this bit, this bit out when people ask me about it. When, when, I, when I first graduated from uni, uh, that was, this was the era of like when reality TV was first started. You applied for Big Brother, didn't you? I didn't apply for Big Brother, <laughs> but I applied for a different show that was similar to Big Brother. <laughs> and a lot of the same people did... You know, apply for both shows. Hold on, what show was this? It was um, it was a show called E Trippers, and it was on cable TV. It was on a channel called Rapture TV, which was I vaguely remember that. Yeah, they mainly they did a show called Clubland, which was on uh, Channel Four, which was just like you know wide angle uh, fixed shots of people off their faces clubbing. Um, but they then produced this travel show, and it's long and complicated. But <laughs> we've uh, got time, mate. We've got time. <laughs> yeah. So the idea it was way ahead of its time. So what they did was they. I held auditions and we, I, I managed to get down to like the last six and they paired us up into um, three pairs of two. And they gave us a, a laptop, a mobile phone and a video camera. And as part of the audition process, we had to say somewhere in the world that we wanted to go and why. And I'd said I wanted to go to um, Buenos Aires to see Boca Juniors play because, you know, mm-hmm. since I was a kid, I was, I was a Maradona fan. And um, 
so the idea was they put me with somebody who'd picked a different place and we would have to travel from that place to Buenos Aires. Yeah. And uh, they actually, when they rang me to say, you've got the you've got the gig, they, they said, oh, do you know who we've put you with? And kind of already I was thinking, um, okay, what's going to be interesting TV wise? And there was a, a guy who uh, was on the, through the audition process, who was super camp, a Chinese guy with a blonde Mohican, I came to the auditions in a um, dinner jacket, bow tie and combat pants. <laughs> and um, it just really uh, gregarious, outgoing, yeah. um, like I said, very camp. And I know I think exactly what you mean. The, yeah, a bit like you, Chris. Yeah, same style. Oh. Um, <laughs> no, but I think looking at it from a, a, an objective point of view, I thought, oh, they're seeing me as like a northern football fan. Yeah. And they think that uh, we're really going to be really different and that's going to make good telly and, mm -hmm. and whatever. And uh, he was a lovely guy, a guy called James. And But he, he the place he wanted to go to is he wanted to go to San Francisco to check out the gay scene. Um, and so they said, right, we're going to send you two to San Francisco and you've got to get yourself to, to Buenos Aires and you've got a mobile phone, a laptop and a... And a camera, and yeah. that's what. So we, so we did it, and um, flew to San Francisco and filmed each other, and um, yeah, we did this whole journey, and it was it was like interactive. It was on there was a website as well where people had to set challenges for us to do along the way. We went down through um, South America, all the way down through um, Peru, Chile, and into Argentina, and it took us two months. Um, yeah, so I had a little bit of, to, to, to go to yeah. the question, I had a little bit of TV experience and, and I can't deny that there must have been something there at the time mm -hmm. that was attracting me to to TV and to presenting. You know, I, I definitely, I can't sit down and say, oh no, I never, you know. Yeah, subconsciously. Yeah, I think so. Yeah I, yeah, I think I was being drawn to it a bit. So probably once I started then with doing the TV commentary and then the BBC thing, I thought, yeah, this is, you know, this is a chance to do something I'm yeah. really... I'm really keen to do. It's not obviously it's not the only thing you do, but it's it, again it's something that fascinates me. And got to say once again, Matt's outdone me on his reality TV uh, experience. Oh, go on. Oh, we can't go into it, please. I, I was, I was on, time. I, he's dying to tell you. I no, I don't. Have I told you? I was on a date. <laughs> I was on a dating show. Did I tell you that? Oh my good god. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. It obviously didn't work. We moving need, we'll on. Talk about, we'll talk about this later. We're eventually going to get to the TT, guys. If you're listening, if you're still with us, we are eventually going to get there. But let's move on. Obviously, BBC, then Eurosport. Yeah. And then this is where you kind of, your career took off because you're here, there and everywhere doing doing everything at this point, right? In a way, yeah. More superbikes, British superbikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was cool to, I suppose, tick those other boxes, if you like. And, mm -hmm. and actually... To be fair, the MotoGP thing, I, I still felt like um, I was fairly young and um, you don't get a lot of experience. You don't get a lot of practice, you know. You don't, it, presenting is, 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 as you know, it's a difficult thing to do and you're judged immediately as soon as you shoved in front of the camera and, you know, you'd have been the same when you finished your racing, Steve, and then suddenly, and people just expect you to hit the ground running and if you don't, you get heavily criticised and people, and, and you still see it now and I, I always sympathise with, especially with ex-racers when they first, you know, do a bit of punditry and people are like, oh, um, it's hard. It's, it's mm. something that you really need to get used to. And and most other jobs, you, you get the opportunity to practice, you know. To work um, into it, yeah. To work into it, but you don't with this one. And and I still felt like um, when it came to the end of the BBC thing at the end of 2013, I still had a lot of room to improve, you know. Well, definitely did and still do. But um, the amount of hours that you actually do in a, in a MotoGP season with half an hour build up, 18 races where you're on screen for probably 15 minutes of that half an hour. Mm -hmm. So 18 times 15, 
no idea what that is, but it's not a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah. um, over over a year yeah. to actually practice the craft, if you like. So um, I was really excited to do the Eurosport job because um, you're hours and hours. Uh, you're doing mm -hmm. like six hours a day, Saturday, six hours Sunday. So it wasn't quite that many in the, in the beginning, but certainly much more opportunity to, to practice and... Uh, the travel was taken away um, as well, That uh, which was an element that I'd grown really uh, quite tired of after like 13 consecutive yeah. years of, of MotoGP. Because so. they're the big days, aren't yeah. they? Eurosport days. They are. You know, I, obviously with what I do within the British Superbike Championship and stuff, and I look at you guys and I think, they're being heck. Yeah, and they're still going. Compared to what, you know, the, the amount of hours I have to put in there. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of jumped ahead a little bit there because you'd actually been introduced to the TT was it 2009 you you did mm. um you were good covering year. for it's good year too. was it? it was a good year yeah what happened <laughs> anything happened someone well, got a sector just, record well, didn't they? yeah some records and some obviously you know someone some special people winning race did yeah. someone win a race I can't, on, I can't you, remember, mate. I can't. Just remind everyone. Come on. Cam Donald got a 130 lap. Was that the first 130 lap, Steve? I think Cam got in practice. Yeah. yeah, in practice. Must be what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. good luck, Cam. I don't, think any, <laughs> I don't think anything else happened then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, it, Craig uh, Doyle had gone to a wedding or something and he missed a couple of days, so they um, sort of drafted me in to do two days cover, which was brilliant. you got no friends that you can... You can go to a wedding next year. <laughs> no, no, I don't have any friends. This is the problem. This is the this is the downside to the job, Chris. God damn it! See, I'd be perfect for it. I don't have any friends yeah. either. Do you yeah. mean a wedding or a job? <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> well, we're looking for that invite. <laughs> so, two thousand nine. How aware of you are are you of the TT yeah. at that point? Oh, very like. You know, very. I mean, t to be fair, like I said, I wasn't massively into motorcycle racing before I started working. Yeah. Uh, but then it became a, um, you know, a, a 24 seven thing. You know, I was obviously doing the GPs for years and just completely immersed in it. So whether it was superbikes, TT, I was watching everything I could. And um, yeah, when uh, when I got the call to nip over to the to to do the TT, I was massively annoyed. And again, that imposter syndrome of being in a paddock where you don't really know anybody, and you're looking up to these guys, and they don't know who you are. And you know, at the time, the likes of Steve, uh, Guy Martin, Cam, um, John McGuinness, obviously, mm -hmm. all these guys, you're looking and it's intimidating you know it was it was intimidating you just didn't know like i'm you know i still am really but but that's amazing when you go you probably go back to the the moto gp paddock and you were you'd probably see rossi walking down and you'd get used to seeing him and you'd probably be able to say hello to him yeah and then you go to the tt and you're in awe of the the likes of these guys yeah M um, much like the likes of valentino are when they when they go to the tt i know, guess so yeah there's so much respect isn't there between the riders in the yeah, different, yeah, uh, different disciplines yeah. so with that you you don't Again, this is just just for my personal um, knowledge, really. When you decide you want to be in motorcycling, you don't just stick with what you know. As in, right, you're going to be hosting the uh, the MotoGP. We're just going to look at that. You you kind of go down every alley of motorcycling and and kind of investigate it and find out what's going on in the world of motorcycling, not just MotoGP. Yeah, well, I, I think you got to, haven't you? Mm. Like, um, you know, there's a bit of crossover with riders coming, you know, crossing paths yeah. and stuff like that, but. But anyway, I'm a sports fan anyway, and I think, you know, one, motorcycle racing is one of those sports where, and I do think most sports are like this. If you actually sit down and watch it properly, you're going to get hooked on it. You can't, yeah. you can't not. The amount of people who, family members of mine who started watching MotoGP when I was doing it, 
who still watch it now because they got hooked on it at the time, you know, with, especially like the Simoncelli is my sister's like obsessed with Simoncelli and, and she would have never watched um, motorbike racing if it wasn't for me working in it. And, and a few of my friends are, are the same. Uh, a lot of them still don't know that that's what I do, but uh, <laughs> most of them, but you know what I mean? And it's the same with like, um, when the Olympics are on, you can get into like curling yeah. suddenly. And, and and as soon as you start to like, oh, right, that's how they do it. Wow, that's cool. And if you've got someone, especially, and that's the job of a presenter really, is to try to to bring mm. people into that and explain the story and explain why it's it's so cool and why it's so interesting. And this is why this is so special for people who have never seen it before. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so... Having worked in it, as soon as as soon as I kind of got my head around what was going on, I was I was just as hooked as any other bike fan, and uh, and followed everything from that point. Superbikes, TT, everything. So, what about you've never fancied anything to do with four wheels, you know, F one or, or or anything like that, whether it be whether it be touring cars, you know, um, anything. I don't know. I've watched it. Somebody was asking me this the other day, and I'm like, now I'll say I will watch pretty much any sport apart from Formula One. I, oh, really, I'm just not interested. I yeah. watched a race and a few weeks ago and I was I was born out of my face. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, and I think it's because of the bike thing. I think if you, mm. I don't know, there might be people listening to this or even you guys. You, you, actually, I, know, I do know some people. One hundred forty-two thousand people at Silverstone sold out. You know, there's a lot yeah. of people will be looking, thinking, "What's going on?" Well, uh, yeah, yeah, for them for sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but I wonder what the crossover is for the guys who are going and girls who are going to be at MotoGP at Silverstone. Mm. Wonder how many of those are like, yeah, um, crossover fans. I'm not sure. But I think once you're into bikes, once you're into MotoGP or the TT or BSB or World Superbikes, I don't see how you can watch Formula One and find it vaguely entertaining, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's <laughs> the uh, the drive to survive effect, though, right? Uh, the Netflix documentary. Yeah, like, that's brought so many. Well, people it is. To and it. Probably, like, I've never watched that, and if I did, I might suddenly it might spark a little bit of interest again mm. because again, it's that knowing the inside of it and knowing. Mm. It's even things like I remember, like in uh, 2001, when I first started working in GPs and I didn't understand what the difference was between Michelin tyres and Dunlop tyres so if someone like McCoy was sliding around on the Dunlops if you remember yeah, uh, lighting it up everywhere and that was cool. but I, that didn't I didn't when I was watching a race at first I, I'm not seeing that but then you start talking to people and then you're like oh right okay so that's why he's doing that oh that's cool alright that's interesting alright he's going to take off for the first 10 laps then are oh, those tyres going to last alright mm -hmm. that's suddenly now there's a story developing here and I'm interested in it Um, so that you know for me that's um, again, like that's what you've got to try to put across when you when you're broadcasting yeah. sport. But I, it almost applies to any sport for, for me. But that, yeah, those those eras of of putting those qualifying tyres in that were super sticky when it was like Dunlop and Michelin. Yeah, and they'd just try and go for the stickiest tyre, and it only just last that one lap. Yeah, but you don't you don't really get that anymore, do you? Do you miss it, Because Steve? everyone's on the same. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I really do because I think it it can make it a little bit. You know, you mm. you're, 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 Last time I broke my neck, you know, I um, spoke to Duke and they sent me all the DVDs back from the old two-stroke days, 500s, mm. and somebody would have a five-second lead yeah. and they wouldn't win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. it was about managing yeah. what they got on to, 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 to win the race. Yeah, so there's an extra yeah. element and, and to the, the And the guys behind wouldn't overdo anything on the early laps because they knew yeah. um, after mid-race or a third of the way race through, they would make the time back up. But yeah. what, what an, it's just an added ingredient to make the whole story better it's yeah. a storyline isn't it yeah. and again if you're just sitting down and all you're seeing is bikes going around well you're not going to be that interested but mm -hmm. as soon as you start picking yeah. these things out you're like oh wow and that's what makes it interesting fascinating storyline in the the 2022 tt as well with, well, the, yeah. with the tires yeah. incredible yeah yeah i've asked the question nobody can answer it you know when was the last time uh 
treaded tyres won all the races at the Alman TT. Mm -hmm. Every race. Yeah. Nobody can answer it. I mean, tyre manufacturers can't. You know, yeah. It just shows how much they've gone on as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, incredibly, yeah. Right, let's take a break here because I do want to get into the TT because there's lots to talk about it. But we'll end part one there. Make sure you check out Isle of Man TT Racers official across all the socials and join us in part two where we chat about Matt's career and work out how I'm going to knock him off. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks, Matt.